Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to another Flypast podcast. Here's Tara Leggett joining me, uh, Assistant Aviation, uh, Historic Aviation Expert from Kiero. Hello, Tara. Away, oh, well, hello there, Hans. How are you? I'm all right, actually. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. I've seen the sun for the first time in about three months today, which I'm actually pretty impressed by. So, you know, it has, it's all it, going has, well. it has been out. I've used, like, you know, Maybe I've just become a hermit through this lockdown, <laughs> to be fair. But like, it's turn I mean, into like a teenage goth. Yeah, I mean, I, what I mean to say is that the sky is no longer 99% cloud. Yes, well, quite. Um, and joining us today, um, here he is. It's Tom Haynes, Assistant Editor for Commercial Aviation on Kiero. How's it going, Tom? Hello. No, it's very good. I, I, I find it is very typically British to talk immediately about the weather, isn't it? But I must oh, I'm comment. Sorry. I, I, I must say, I must say, the sky is very blue where I am as well. So uh, no, that's well, very welcome. Well done, everybody, for uh, describing the weather on a podcast. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's sure it's to go true. down very, very well. Tom, this is your this is your debut on the Fly Pass podcast. Gosh, I I better not make a fool of myself. It's it's honestly it's right. this, is, do, this, will go, this will go on your CV. You'll remember where you were <laughs> the day you were on the Flypass podcast for the first time. I guarantee it. Ooh, it's um, a privilege. And it, so it's good. It's good to have you on though, because we thought it might be interesting to have a little chat about historic aviation in terms of commercial flights. You know, I think something that we all take for granted now, isn't it, that we can just fly. You know, anywhere anymore, or pretty Hans. much anytime. No, I know, but you know, generally speaking. <laughs> pre-COVID, we can just jump on a plane, can't we, and, and, and get anywhere. But, um, you know, it's interesting to trace back and um, see how that all started, isn't it, I think? No, I agree. And I think, um, yeah, historic aviation, um, a big part of that is obviously um, a military aspect. I suppose quite a lot of developments in aviation have, have come about um, as a result of their sort of military application, but uh, especially in the initial stages. But, uh, yeah. It's uh, it is quite fun to sort of trace the yeah the lineage back to to the very early days of of commercial air travel. I yes, must say, well, I yes. do I do have a bit of a soft spot, a bit of a weakness for commercial, a bit of a I wouldn't say guilty pleasure because that makes me sound really bad in com- <laughs> <laughs> talking to you, Tom. But I do like a bit of commercial. <laughs> I love the fact that you think it's a guilty pleasure. I mean, do you, when you when you go to Spain, do you go like in a two seater Spitfire? Honest, honest to God. I'm not joking, quite a little bit off topic, but I'm not allowed to drive if the journey takes us past an airport because my partner says I get too distracted. I'll tell you what, I, I can identify with that, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it is quite, um, yeah, <laughs> it's quite difficult to drive near an airport without spending a lot of time looking at the aircraft and not very much time at the road. Exactly. So, <laughs> the only I can thing that you can hope for is to get stuck in traffic so that you literally have to sit there. And all you've got to do is look at tra- uh, look at. I tell you airports. what, a breakthrough I had actually was um, a car with a sunroof. That oh, is yes. amazing because <laughs> you can look up and you can see the aircraft. So you don't have to sort of like squish Crane. your head on the window to try and see see up. So you ever you... knew that such a revolutionary concept know, as yeah. the, well, uh, uh, also, the sunroof? Also, uh, convertibles are available. But oh, um, let's, that uh, is a severe upgrade. <laughs> let's let's um let's 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 go back in time then a little bit. Um, so the 1920s, I suppose, is when 
when hands. things started to kind of kick it. I know, yeah, 19, was it 1914, that first kind of, you know, uh, yeah. that first sort of commercial sort of flight. But once you're kind of getting into the 20s, you're starting to see a bit of an acceleration, uh, I suppose. Is that is that fair to say, Tara? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, sort of Florida and especially Tampa Bay, I guess, isn't just famous for, you know, the worthy winners, the Buccaneers in the NFL. <laughs> Uh, in, in oh dear. <laughs> apologies to uh, anyone listening here for this, is, this has gone very off paste no i'm getting there thank you um, <laughs> um no in january on new year's day of january 1914 was actually when the first ever um scheduled passenger service began between st petersburg in F- florida to tampa in florida so and that was a that was a uh flying boat as they call it um but it was the first ever uh quote-unquote commercial um service passenger service which is quite interesting so obviously it started in sort of 1914 and then just grew in in sophisticated sophistication in between then well, you say sophistication, but, you know, it wasn't oh God, long no. before people were uh, sort of, you know, getting in the back of, you know, like airmail planes and sort of, you know, sitting in there with a bunch of letters. It'd be like a sort of, uh, you know, trying to trying to hop on board the DHL, you know, 747, I, wouldn't it? I read in preparation for this, um, for this podcast, I was reading a few little articles and, it, and one of them that I came across actually said that often, despite the fact that a passenger would obviously pay to travel, people would, or sort of the aviation companies, would prioritise taking mail over taking passengers because they could just get a bit more done with, by doing it. Like, that was literally it. I they suppose could, they're a little bit more, well, a little bit less demanding, aren't they? So well, a mail yeah. is a bit less demanding than <laughs> Yeah, than they don't people. necessarily have to give them sick buckets for the turbulence and stuff like that, especially back in those days. But, yeah, they would literally be like, no, we've got too many postcards on board so we're not taking any passengers on this flight which i guess is a bit mad it always when you see the pictures you know from that kind of era of people sort of you know getting onto a plane it always sort of strikes me you know how sort of you know how it always sort of feels very dangerous oh my god so i don't know about either of you two but i went through a bit of a um bit of a gothic uh, stage in my in my pre-teens. Well, we've heard, we have only five minutes ago we heard about that. You haven't seen the sun for three months. Well, this is true. This is true. Um, but um, during said said period, I used to frequent the mosh pit and the uh, and the how do you say it? Very very screamo music uh, concert, <laughs> so to speak. And. So, Apologies uh, for listeners who don't know what no, screamo music I, is, by the way. It's just I think it's pretty self-explanatory, <laughs> to be honest. Um, um, but so on average, the average heavy metal rock concert is a hundred decibels in the 1920s, or during a flight on the famed Tin Goose, the average uh, decibel decibel sound went up to 120. So it was 20 decibels louder to fly in an aeroplane in the 1920s than it is to literally get your eardrums blown off by people <laughs> screaming into a microphone. <laughs> and that's just mad. And air stewardesses used to come along with little balls of wool to put in passengers' ears. 
like that's going to make much difference. Genuinely, genuinely, <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's mad. Was, it's stupid. It was like the start of those, uh, you know, when you kind of go on a long haul flight and they come around and give you those little pouches that have got like um, an eye mask on. This one. is like, this is the sort of, you know, in, first incarnation of that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm sat next to one, actually. You have got one of those little... I, um, I have a Singapore Airlines one here. Mm-hmm. Wow! <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. But, you know, I mean, uh, you know, just going back to that. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I'd have sort of, you know, fancied, you know, getting on one of those aircraft back then. It just sort of, um, you know, we again we take it for granted that you know flying is an incredibly sort of you know safe way to travel. But that's because obviously modern modern planes, Tom, don't they? They go through you know such stringent you know you know checks and measures. You know that it's um, you know it's all you know, wind tunnel testing and, you know, a proper cutting edge aerospace technology. Back then, it's kind of, you know, very far from that, isn't it? Oh, yeah. No, I can agree. I can agree. Uh, the um, the first one that I'm sort of aware of, not that I was around at the time, is the is sort of a British Airways um, sort of, what would you call it? It's um, a predecessor, really, to British Airways, sort of the, the as far back as you can go, really. Um, it was a company called Air Transport and Travel, which was shortened to AT&T, which, of course... I mean, that's a bit of a misnomer, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, which, of course, now, nowadays has a completely different meaning in a completely different industry. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they flew um, um, airmail, as, you, as you've already said, from sort of London to Paris, and they operated sort of a daily, a daily service. And... Uh, um, they actually, I think they leased the aircraft from KLM, which KLM... Um, was the oldest airline in is, 1919 is, or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, I think it's the oldest airline now with the, that's kept the same name um, and hasn't really changed like, like its structure, really. Um, so yeah, they leased their aircraft from KLM and uh, did pretty much the same thing. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it doesn't... The aircraft look very... Um, very uh, basic, <laughs> really. Didn't they used to lease like uh, former military biplanes to do the first sort of passenger services and things like yes. that? And that, I just think that's a bit mad. Like yeah. you're in a you're in a plane that's been used for military purposes, but you're going on your holidays. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, enjoy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I've got a bit of a thing though about you know uh, you know propeller planes, you know. In in you know in 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 context perhaps in in that early military environment you know that's 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 all fine but you know the thought of you know we don't go on propeller planes too much now do we for kind of commercial for commercial purposes do we? they sort of you know very sort of, very rarely it's very like remote. Remote. well they've got a they've got a specific role really and it's it's very short sectors they do they do that really well um, but anything anything longer than I don't know. Three four hundred miles. You, they, they normally the jet jet market is what 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 operates those. So really short sectors. Yeah, I um I, I was scarred though. I went on um in Thailand about twenty years ago. I went on this propeller plane um uh, from Chiang Mai in the north of Thailand down to uh, Bangkok, and it was like it was. I knew it was going to be a bad flight. And I looked down. It was like literally like hand painted. This sort of plane. <laughs> I got a cardboard boarding pass with my seat number written in a like a felt tip. So I thought this is this is not right. And it, it sort of took off, and it didn't even didn't even kind of like get to cruising altitude. And then it kind of like it started sort of you know descending, not in an alarming way, but in a kind of we're coming into land sort of way. And I was thinking that's a bit quick. We're not in uh, Bangkok yet, and that's a bit further than like five minutes. But. It, it then just sort of landed in this random airstrip, like in the middle of nowhere, and a few people just got off, and then uh, and then sort what, of like took off. 
It's yeah, like a bus basically. service. Like, <laughs> a, oh like a plane bus. <laughs> plane you know, bus. bus. It's, um, oh, I like that, Tom. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, Tom, and I, I suppose, you know, when you kind of look at commercial aviation in a, in a historic sense, the jet age was when it really kind of kicked off, wasn't it? Oh, it was. And I think, um, I think yes, the, the, the propeller aeroplanes still have a, a place within um, commercial aviation. They're like they're lots of airlines. Um, I mean, Flybe, for example, when it was operating, almost exclusively used um, Dash 8 Q400s, which are propeller-driven aircraft. But yeah, the, the, the jet age really back in the 19 or the early 1950s, um, that really was, I suppose, the start of, of like the proper commercial aviation or what we know today, really. So, I mean, 1951, I think, was the first flight of a production version of the Comet, which, of course, was the world's first jetliner. Um, it can take that title, the world's first um, jetliner. <laughs> and, uh, and they're, That's very good produced... of you to bestow that on it. <laughs> I, I, Officially I will... bestowed by Thomas Haynes. Uh, of course, it means a lot, you know. Yeah, exactly. uh, up until then, it was, it was the so-called, you know, first, yeah. world's first jetliner. But Thomas Haynes has called it, <laughs> has officially given it that title now. Um, but yeah, so the, so the Comet really started the jet age. Um, but of course, we know it had its problems with the windows and structural stuff. And I think initially it also had problems with the wing design. There were a couple of crashes quite early on, non-fatal ones um, during takeoff where pilots would over-rotate the aircraft and then it it wouldn't take off, basically. Then later on, they had the issues with the windows, um, which, of course, led to the grounding of it for sort of four years or something until they fixed it. And by then, really, uh, the Comet had really sort of missed the bus, really, um, because... um, the head start that they had had, they'd lost. And then the Americans came in with their um, Boeing 707, um, which really got the jet age going. Um, the Comet started the jet age, but the 707 pretty much got it going properly. The, uh, the, um, the Comet, though, is still, is still amazing. I love... Um you know, seeing it at the uh, de Havilland Museum, they've got a really, you know, obviously you can go on and sort of, you know, have a look, mooch around. It's like, um, that must have been so luxurious or must have seemed unbelievable to people back in in, in that era. And those seats were huge, weren't they? They were like sort of like double beds. Do you know what I find really interesting? So for a a comet to fly from uh, London to Brisbane in Australia, it was how much how much was it? I've got it written down because I'm bad at numbers. It was two hundred and forty three pounds in nineteen forty. No. Whenever nineteen fifty two, I think. Yeah. Um but then uh obviously you had to stop on the way, but that was the equivalent of seventeen thousand pounds in this day and age. I did the exact journey this time a year ago, and it cost me nine hundred pounds return. Wow, no, that's and that was only thing. one way on the way there to go in a comment. Yeah, wow. it was. It, it, I think um, you know, there's all sorts of you know crazy stats about what what it kind of cost back then. You know, aren't there? I mean, I think you know that on those early flights in a comet, I think they were you know the equivalent of over you know ten thousand you know dollars worth. But people, you know, it was flying was the preserve of the wealthy, wasn't it? No, it certainly was, and I think the another aspect to, to that is the, the stats. I mean, the journey times are just, and, and especially the the comets journey times 
are amazing. I mean, for example, I mean, my example here is sort of, um, I think in 1953, uh, BOAC launched a route from, um, well, they were already operating it, but they launched a comet route from London to Tokyo. Um, and in the Argonaut piston airliner that it was using before, it took 86 hours um, and they had to stop, obviously, lots of times. Um, and the Comet managed to do it in 36 hours. But, but even back then, um, the Comet still had to stop nine times on the way to Tokyo, which, I mean, we, we people moan at having to stop once to go. I suppose that's true, though, isn't it? Like JFK, for example, if you have to like stop in Amsterdam to go to JFK, people get annoyed. To go I to do. Tokyo, they <laughs> to go to Tokyo, they had to stop nine times, even in the comet. When we flew to Brisbane last year, I was really frustrated because we had to stop. We the only time that the only flight that we could get had to stop in Singapore. And I was really frustrated because we missed out on the first lot of direct flights to Sydney. Um, otherwise we would have taken that. But I suppose we're only just getting into the direct flights to go that far, aren't we, commercially? Yeah, so it's what was a bit that mad. Heathrow to Perth, wasn't it? That one of those was it seventeen hours that 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 takes, and that yeah. was seemed very sort of you know revolutionary at the at the time, wasn't it? But I mean, I suppose if you look at that, once that jet jet age had started, I mean, it, it that that transatlantic route became very popular quite quickly, didn't it? And it became sort of quite fiercely competitive, didn't it? And oh, we, yeah. we we think that you know. It, you know, competition between airlines is a sort of, you know, relatively recent thing with, you know, Ryanair and EasyJet muscling in on BA. But in actual fact, you know, back then, you know, KLM and SAS and Air France and everyone was, you know, they were all going at it, weren't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, the transatlantic market nowadays, and actually for a while, as you mentioned, has been, it is the most like fiercely competitive market in the sense that, I mean, if we look now at how many airlines fly that, that sort of across the across the Atlantic, it's ridiculous. British Airways, American Airlines, Delta, SAS, Finnair, like you could literally go on. Like most European carriers do transatlantic routes, and and of course, in such a price sensitive market nowadays, they they are very very competitive on their prices. But and that's not that's as you say, that's not a recent thing. That's been happening for for decades. Yeah. So seven oh seven then, Tom, bit of a bit of a game changer for historic commercial flight absolutely and, and and in a sense it um as i as i've said before it really it got the jet age going really i mean the comet started it and i think i'm not entirely sure how many comets they produced but i don't think it was terribly i know they produced sort of about 70 comet fours it was just over 100 comets actually total including prototypes um but the 707 um they sold nearly a thousand of them so, I mean, that just that just gives an indication, really, of the the scale of difference between how successful the co- uh, comet was in comparison to the seven hundred seven, and um, it sort of not only did the seven hundred seven sort of was it so successful, but it sort of established the sh- like what a airliner looks like. If you mm. think about it, nowadays we've not really departed very far from the seven hundred seven. I mean, Boeing, for example, is still using the cross section of the 707 on its 737. Mm-hmm. Um, like the cross section is exactly the same. We've just obviously lost um, the amount of engines as, as fuel burners become a, um, a concern. So yeah, the 707, um, yeah, it was, it was <laughs> well, an, understa- an understatement for success really, but um, yeah, it led to 
the widespread proliferation of commercial air travel, definitely. And then the 747 came along and made it even even more successful. Like air travel, cheap uh, air travel got cheaper, more accessible. Um, and then instead of it just being a preserve for the rich, it then became even more um, sort of accessible to the wider set of people, really. It's interesting, isn't it? When you um, everyone thinks that these low cost carriers are a, a, a very very recent thing, but they started, uh, you know, or we sort of first you know dipped our turn to them quite you know what was in the seventies. Uh, yeah, so in uh, Laker Airways um, in the seventies, that we I can't remember how I don't think it was around for a very long time, um, but it, it sort of established low, the low cost um, model. And then obviously Ryanair being probably the most notable low-cost carrier in the world. <laughs> for <laughs> good came, or bad reasons. <laughs> yeah, for good or bad reasons. They came along, came along in the sort of late 80s operating a, a small number of flights out of Ireland. And then obviously, as we know, they grew into that sort of giant they are now. But uh, yeah, they came around in sort of the late, late 80s. And then obviously EasyJet um, was sort of the 90s. And then obviously, well... And then we've got there's, lots of local loads of them now. Yeah, that start and stop. But the the, the, the two giants, EasyJet and, and Ryanair, they've been around since the 80s and 90s. So, yeah, quite a while. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I, I think, you know, I know it's not a historic point, but I, I mean, Ryanair is, you know, maligned a little bit, isn't it? But they they have opened up, mm. uh, made a massive contribution to opening up air travel for the masses, really, haven't they? And, and what, they, yeah, what they've also the done is, yeah, absolutely. Well, what they've, what they've also done is they've forced legacy carriers like British Airways and SAS and all that. They've forced them to be more competitive um, with pricing, um, which some say has sort of damaged the sort of, I suppose, damaged the like the offering that they're like. For example, British Airways used to supply newspapers to people that flew on British Airways until quite recently, to be fair, and they now don't do that. And and things like. Um, uh, a free meal service, like a free basic meal service for economy. They used to do that. They now don't do that because they can't afford to do that because sort of the competition for price. Um, you know, my, on- my uncle's a pilot for British Airways on 777s. And he said, you know, when they stand and they sort of wave the, the passengers off the plane and they all say thank you. He said the amount of people now that complain like, <laughs> oh, everything's changed and get a newspaper. And he's like, yeah, I know. Like, it's not yeah. really. It's just the developing market now. That's how it is. Ryanair also introduced um, spontaneous rounds of applause on landing. Which <laughs> oh, is, no, that's yeah. the most... Oh, I hate it. It's just, I can't stand it. Yeah. It's so insulting. I can't... Let's, uh, let, let's not go there. But just no. go... You mentioned that, you know, that when the, seven, the, the 747 was kind of really getting into its stride, Tom, and um, we love all that old footage, don't we, of, you know looking yeah. at you know the um the first class cabins and all the lobsters being served and oh. you know i think it was that was the um the eureka Quantus moment one. wasn't it of the um aviation industry when they sort of people worked out you could have two prices you could have you know um some um economy and then some posh seats where you could sort of you know charge you know 15 times more uh, <laughs> and that's where the airlines that's where the airlines make their money um is the is the premium stuff business class first class it's where where the money really is they they do make money on economy of course but um without business and premium they they really they wouldn't make very much money at all <laughs> so so here's a question then for uh for, for, for both of you so what you know in terms of historic aviation in a you know commercial aviation sense what is your favorite aircraft and why 
Oh yeah. Who's, who's going to go gone first? There. I've gone there. You I are because you're, oh, you're 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 already talking. <laughs> I'll, I'll, okay, I'll go. I've got one. I, my my favourite, to be fair, it's got to be the Lockheed L1011 TriStar. Um, it's obviously three-engined aircraft developed by Lockheed to compete with um, McDonnell Douglas with the DC-10. Um, I think my, the reason I like it, I just lo- I love the way it looks. I love the blended um, sort of third engine in the tail, whereas the DC-10 sort of it stuck out a bit. The uh, the TriStar had sort of a blended sort of, sort of scoop thing for the third <laughs> engine. It also was an incredibly incredibly technologically advanced aircraft. It could land itself, and and this was like pre-auto land. Like it, there was they they piled so much money in, into the development of the aircraft. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it was, it was way ahead of its time as well. And it suffered because of that, because obviously airlines were still sort of getting used to, I don't know, um, 747s and all of that. And then the TriStar came along and, uh, yeah, it was very ahead of its time. It looks awesome. I like it. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, no, that's my favorite. I think to be honest, uh, Sounding quite boring, but obviously the Comet's got to be up there because it did kickstart it all off. But I'm going to annoy you a bit here. I really like the DC-10. Oh, yeah, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I've always, I, I've always said that I like sort of a bit less conventional looking aeroplanes. And I think when I first started to have more of an interesting commercial and I found out that there was this massive jetliner with an engine on the on the back i was like yeah i like it i like that one I yeah. like it. so i don't know i I'll think tell you, a comment i've got about the the the, the a comet a comet no oh gosh a comment i've got about the comet <laughs> drunk <laughs> comets on the mind slurring my words it's slurring your words thomas only nine in the morning <laughs> um but yes as i say a comment about it i i'd say i think i think the comet looks amazing sort of from the front but I think it, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of the of the of the back end, the tail, and it. I think oh, I it just know. looks I very odd. It just it looks really small, and sort of it looks I, I disproportionate. Think, disproportionate. I think in, in terms of like you flew you you flew the large you fuse the large. Um, it's quite a wide body, isn't it? And I think in comparison to when you then look further on to sort of like your tail section, I, I do see where you're coming from, but. Mm. In terms it tails, of it tails off a bit, and it, it sort of it's a, it's a bit yeah, a bit small. I'm not enjoying the number. I am enjoying the number of puns that is in this week's podcast. It's really getting me through. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I think in terms of what it did for aviation and mm. uh, the the way it was the first sort of you know uh, aircraft of that look, I just think. It, you, it is one of the favourites, isn't it? It's, but it's like saying that, you know, the Spitfire is your favourite fighter. Bit boring, but it's true. No, it's, it's, the, it's the first. It was the, it was the first. It, it did things differently, sort of the blended engine in the mm. wing kind of thing. And then they realised sort of Boeing sort of, they were very privileged actually to be in that position of being the second because they could then sort of take everything that didn't work with, with the <laughs> Comet. They could sort of, do it differently so they did a yeah they did a swept sort of a wing with with the engine pods and obviously we now know the the engine pod design is sort of well that's the way to do it because every mm. airliner since has done it like that um but yes no i think the comment i like the comment too but the tristar I mean, for me is the favorite 
I mean, if 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 we're going to keep on just for one more second, you can't really look over things such as the Concord, um, which again, that is another very very revolutionary uh, concept, and is arguably the uh, you know the equivalent of my favourite. <laughs> Of my favourite military aircraft, the Vulcan, which we Here won't we go. get into. Hang on, who's, who's playing Tara Leggett bingo out there? Um, the, it was, you left it quite late for a Vulcan mention, but I'm glad you well, got I it have, in there. Have, but you know, it, you just can't. I don't know. I, I see where you're coming from, but you know, I think the Concorde's better than the Vulcan. Although the, the, the oh, whoa, Concorde, Tom, we con- are not friends anymore. Wow. The, the Concorde did, of course, <laughs> use. Um, Calm the down, Vulcan's everyone. HR engines. are listening. <laughs> workplace disagreements they're, they're, they're probably not actually to be the, um, <laughs> yeah the, as I say the Concord used the Vulcan's engine so you know I mean they wouldn't eh, the Vulcan was very important Tara very important you, because Tom. it allowed the it allowed the Concord to to well fly Eat. without with the engines it wouldn't really have worked but yeah I think I, I think design wise I think the Concord <laughs> just looks better what, what my point was, was that you can't talk historic commercial aviation without having a Concorde mention in there. But I also yes. managed to link it up to the Vulcan, so that was an extra added bonus. So Yeah, well done. And, and on that note, I think, you know, uh, I, I think let's, let's, let's wrap it up. I mean, obviously, Tara, now that you've revealed your goth pass, it's, you know, you've had <laughs> half an hour in, in the lights. It's time for you to um, turn the lights off, pull the curtains and sort of put um, Sisters of Mercy on or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Tom, how how did you find your uh, your first fly past podcast? No, it's a wonderful experience. Keen to I, get immediate um, feedback. No, it's great. I love it. I just get to talk for half an hour about exactly. airplanes. Which, exactly. I mean, nothing better than that. Yeah, no, I mean, great. you are free to do that in your job as well. You also, don't need a podcast yeah. to do that. <laughs> True. Uh, but- <laughs> I think it'd be rather weird if you just rang up people, just like I'm ready to talk about. Or uh, just sat there on my own and talked about them to yeah. myself. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I could do no, that. It's good. Well, let's get you, we'll, we'll get you on again um, sometime soon, shall we? And then we can talk about the Concord. Oh, Ooh. yes. Yes. Let's we'll, we'll, put it, we'll put it in the diary. Uh, well, look, thanks, uh, thanks to both of you for your time. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, see you again same time next week. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.